We'll be in the book of Acts, specifically in Acts chapter 10, and also uh, about half of Acts chapter 11. It's around like uh, 60 plus verses here, and so uh, do give me some mercy as I go throughout, some grace as I go throughout uh, this book, uh, this chapter with you. Now, last week, remember, uh, Pastor Rafe, he talked about the amazing testimony of the Apostle Paul, an, an enemy, a persecutor of the church, and how God miraculously saved him on the road to Damascus. Now, Luke, the writer of Acts, he kind of takes the camera off of Paul. He goes back to him a lot more later in Acts, but he goes back to the Apostle Peter, and he focuses on him because, as we saw in the end of chapter 8 in Acts with Philip, when the gospel was moving through Samaria and even to the Ethiopian eunuch, which hinted at the ends of the earth, we get to Peter, and most importantly, the 12 apostles, and Peter represents the, the head, the leader of the church. In Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said to Peter, I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And so the question comes up, will he, will the key leader and teacher of the church endorse that the gospel should reach to the ends of the earth? Or what might be prohibiting him to do so. Well, we come to Acts chapter 10 and we find out. So let me just pray for our time, for our text today, and let me dig right in. God, we are thankful for your word this morning. Um, as we dig into this story, God, it's a, it's a story that easily we can look at and we can say, thank God this happened. But God, I pray that as we go through the story, help us to see ourselves in the story. Open up our hearts, allow our hearts to be open to receive your word, not built with walls or not with rock hard soil, God, but with a soil that is good and ready to not just be hearers of your word, but doers of your word. God, I pray that whatever I say that is not of you, that would be forgotten and just passed away, but whatever is from you and of your spirit, that it may deep dig deeply in our hearts for your sake and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let me start with a question. What is the most important ingredient when cooking? What is the most important ingredient when cooking? Is it salt, rice, water, maybe even heat, fish? Now, these are some great answers, and for some of you, it might be the most important ingredient. But if we look broadly throughout all types of cultures and people groups and places, some of those ingredients are more important than others. And so not everyone has the most important ingredient throughout all cultures. But do you know what one ingredient is essential across all cultures? Time. I know, I know, you're saying, no, time is not an ingredient. I get it, I get it, but just, just listen here. Think of one of your most favorite meals. Maybe a meal your mom or your grandma makes during Thanksgiving or Christmas or an important holiday. For me, it's the ultimate Korean feast. I think I have a picture, if you can see up, up there, where there's Korean short rib, there's various marinated meats, there's stews, there's all these colorful side dishes of vegetables, some fermented and some not. And as my mom would prepare this meal, or the mom and the aunts and the grandmothers, they would spend all day the day before and the day during to prepare this grand meal for the family. And I guarantee that any of your favorite meals take a lot of time. But what happens when you don't have time 
to make that meal? What happens to the food that we eat? Though we have plenty of ingredients, when you lack time, our meals can be overly processed, can be unhealthy, salty, not just not tasty enough, not satisfying enough. Even if you had the best ingredients around the world and the best chefs, if you did not have time, your favorite meal could not be completed. Whether it's because you don't have the time or whether you don't want to acknowledge that time is important to cooking, many of us try to shortcut it. But you know that you will never get that beautiful array or taste in that meal if you don't take the adequate time when you cook. You know, in a similar way for today, when we get to our story, there was a key missing ingredient for the early church to fulfill their mission. It was the command from Jesus to go to the ends of the earth, or to the ends of the earth. Even though the church, as we saw from Acts 1 through 9, was on fire, they were baptizing thousands of people, healing so many people, even reaching people like the Ethiopian eunuch and the persecutor Saul, or we call Paul, there was still this deep hidden sin in the early church that God needed to address because it was preventing the early church from going to the nations. So as we go through our story today, I wanna share three foundational truths we can take from Acts 10 and part of Acts 11 today. Let me jump in. I'm not gonna read our entire text, but kind of go through verses that are important here because if I read the whole thing, it might take about like six or seven minutes just to get through it. But the first foundational truth I want us to see is the gospel is for all people. The gospel is for all people. We begin our story here in Caesarea, which was a major port city in uh, the Roman province and also a home to many Gentiles. Our Gentiles are just anyone who's not Jewish, uh, not from Jewish background. And what's interesting is if we go back to the last verse in chapter eight, after Philip, the evangelist, baptizes the Ethiopian eunuch and the spirit carries him away, do you know where the spirit ends up carrying him to? To Caesarea. And then the story stops there for some reason. And in a way, I think Luke, the, the writer of Acts, he's picking up where he left off at the end of chapter 8 because he's saying that the gospel was about to go to the ends of the earth, but something was stopping it. And so then we turn our camera, our attention to Peter and the Roman centurion, who are two different characters. We meet Cornelius, the Roman centurion, which is simply a military commander who was 100% Italian, as it says in our text, working under the Roman Empire. But in verse 22, we also hear that he is someone who was highly respected by the Jewish community. We learn that he was the devout man who feared God and his giving and praying. And so we learn that he actually followed the Jewish God, Yahweh, same as the Jews, but he didn't know the gospel of Jesus Christ. Something was missing. And then our second character is we meet Peter, 100% Jew, leader and rock of the early church, deliverer of the most powerful gospel messages. He has that saved thousands of people. If you look back in the end of chapter nine, you also see him healing uh, a paralyzed man and also raising up a dead woman through the power of the spirit. Peter was fulfilling the gospel message, but there was also something missing 
and Peter too. So they both then received these visions after praying from God. Cornelius' vision was to go and to fetch Peter, who was residing 30 miles south in Joppa, because he had a message for, for Cornelius and his family. And so Cornelius, after seeing the vision, he immediately gets three of his best men, and he sends them to find Peter. Then Peter also receives a vision, this elaborate vision, which this sheet with four corners comes down from heaven, and all these animals from all over the world are there, unclean and clean. And God tells him, not just once, not twice, but three times, kill and eat. And if you remember in the story, he's, 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 he's like, uh, he's, has this vision because he's hungry as well. But Peter responds, I have never eaten anything unclean. But then God then responds back to him, and he says in verse 15 of our text, what God has made clean, do not call common or unclean. Now, what's going on in Peter's vision? And we have to kind of go a little bit way back in Scripture to figure this out. To understand this, we have to go back to the law God gave to Israel in the time of Moses. When God gave specific ceremonial food laws that differentiated clean animals versus unclean animals. And the unclean animals were ones that you should not be eating, found in Leviticus 11. Now, this wasn't because God was just a picky God, but because the animals represented what Israel was supposed to be, a clean, pure, holy nation. They needed, they needed to separate themselves, not in terms of just ethnicity or food groups, but in terms of God's law and not following the unclean ways of the surrounding nations that were evil, unjust, and just disobedient people. But then as generations went on for the people of Israel and on and on, these ceremonial laws that were meant to pursue holiness for God's people, they became distorted into acts of ethnic pride and favoritism. And in some cases, downright hatred for people who are not Jewish. In a book, uh, The Sketches of a Jewish Life, an historian, he writes about the Jewish society during Jesus' time. And he would say that he would find records often where Gentiles, non-Jews, would commonly be associated as dogs, or where there, where there be traditions and even laws written that would be prohibiting any Jew from eating with Gentiles or marrying with Gentiles. So when God, he presents this sheet in this vision, clean and unclean, and told Peter to kill and to eat, God was saying, do not let these food laws stop you from eating with Gentiles, from having fellowship with Gentiles. In my eyes, they are not common. They aren't unclean. I have deemed them clean. Now, to be clear, this tradition that the, early, that the early Jewish community had, this was not God's plan for all of humanity. If we go back to Genesis 12, 1 through 3, we see that God gives this mandate to Abraham, the father of all of Israel. And he says to him, and he prophesies, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And if you look throughout the narrative of scripture, you can't help but see God's heart for the nations. 
You can't help but look in Psalms and see how God's desire was to fill the entire earth with his glory. You can look into the prophets and the laws and see how even foreigners and immigrants were welcomed and protected, which was totally countercultural during that time. You can look in the Gospel of Matthew and see in Jesus' lineage how there were several non-Jewish women, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba, who were Jesus' great-great-great-grandmothers. And you can look at Jesus' life and how he interacted with Jews and with Gentiles. And in Matthew 15, when he told the disciples that it wasn't what entered your mouth, literally the food in your mouth, that made you unclean, but it was what came out of your mouth, which was from your heart that made you unclean, already addressing these ceremonial food laws. And, you know, at this point, I bet I'm talking to the choir here because here at Park, we believe and we've preached many times over again that our God is a God who has a heart for all nations, for all 16,000 plus people groups throughout the world. And you've heard that the message of Jesus Christ is for them just as much as it is for us or for anyone else. And there is so much more that can be shared about God's heart for the nations. Um, I, there, you can't do it in one sermon or even five sermons. But one uh, kind of practical, tangible step that I would love to encourage all of the church to participate in is in this class called Perspectives. Now, this class is offered at Park once a year in the beginning of January. And if you have not taken this class yet, I would strongly encourage you to do so, to understand God's heart for the nations. But as now we go back to our story and we look at, as we continue on, we have to ask a question. Why does God have to remind Peter here, the leader of the church, about this very thing? Wasn't the command in Acts 1-8 clear enough? Shouldn't he have known? Did, did he forget? No. He very much knew this message which leads me to my second truth. The gospel exposes our prejudices. Now, before I go back to the story, I want to clarify two definitions here. The first, when I say prejudices, literally the word prejudgment, I mean the positive but usually negative prejudging of a person or group of people not based on actual experience or reason. Now, this is very similar in the same spectrum of the word called biases, which is an inclination or an outlook to hold a partial, a partial view or perspective. Now, I'm going to use these words a little bit interchangeably here because I think they apply to our entire story. Because as we see in our text, as we look in verse 20, the Spirit telling Peter after his vision, he says, after Peter gets his vision, he says to them, there are three Gentile men waiting and looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. The word without hesitation can also be translated without distinction or without discrimination. So even with this vision, three times, the spirit knew he had to tell Peter, who had this ethnic or cultural or really mixed uh, prejudice barrier that would have most likely prevented him from going with these three men from this Gentile man to this Gentile home to this Gentile city, the spirit had to command him verbally, go with them. 
Yet even when Peter, as we go further in our story, in verse 28, as he gets to the house of Cornelius, he says this. He says to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone or another nation, or from another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. You know, I, I don't know about you, but when you read verses 28 and 29, doesn't Peter's response feel a little bit self-centered or a little bit reluctant here? Like he goes into this room and he says, hey, everyone, you know I'm not supposed to be here. I'm a Jew and well, you're not. But I came here because God kept telling me to do so. So what is it? What do you want from me? It makes you wonder if Peter really wanted to be there. You know, most scholars estimate that from Acts 2, when Pentecost happened, to Acts 10, about six years have passed. That means six years where the church in Jerusalem and the disciples of Jesus have really failed to go to the ends of the earth. And the main reason why God had to intervene with the vision from heaven was because Peter was blinded by a mixture of his own ethnic, historic, and religious prejudice and bias he had towards Gentile peoples. And that became a barrier, not just for him, but as the leader of the church, it became a barrier for the entire early church to reach the nations with the gospel. Now, there's a story about um, Mahatma Gandhi, which was, uh, who was a very famous Indian civil rights leader, lawyer um, back in the day. And he tells a story when he was a student in England. You know, he was deeply touched early on in his life by reading the Gospels and seriously considered actually becoming a convert to Christianity, which seemed to offer a real solution to the historic caste system that divided the people of India. But he tells a story where one Sunday, he attended a church service and decided to ask the minister for enlightenment on salvation and other doctrines. But when Gandhi entered the sanctuary, the ushers refused to give him a seat and suggested that he go elsewhere to worship with his own people. He left, and he never came back. And he said, if, Christian, if Christians have a caste difference also, he said to himself, I might as well remain a Hindu. You know, this is such a sad, sad story, and actually not an uncommon story. And for many of us, when we hear that story, and even in looking at our country's history, we say, yeah, no, but that was way back then ago. We aren't segregated anymore. We love diversity. We love the multi-ethnic church, right? We just saw that video. We don't have any prejudice or biases, right? Well, let me ask you a question. Who would you welcome into your home? Who would you welcome into your home? Would you welcome someone with a certain skin color or from a certain neighborhood? Would you welcome someone wearing a certain outfit like a prison garb or a police uniform? Would you welcome someone who reeked of alcohol or just smelled bad? Would you welcome someone sporting a Make America Great Again hat or a Black Lives Matter shirt, or a defund the police bumper sticker? Would you sit down and prepare a meal for them and eat with them and spend time with them? If we dug deep into our hearts, 
all of us here would be hesitant to welcome certain people, maybe even worship alongside certain people groups. If Peter, the leader of the church, held a strong prejudice, we do too. Now, most of us recognize the explicit acts of prejudice that we can see around us, where it's in racism, discrimination, or acts of hatred against certain people groups, social classes, people who wear certain clothes, or jobs, or genders, or whatever. All of us can agree that when there is outright hatred or discrimination on an individual level, or on a social level, or on a systemic level, all of these are unjust and clearly wrong. We can all most likely agree on that. But the deep-seated sin of prejudice, especially in terms of ethnicity or people groups or even just ideologies, is not direct hatred or outright discrimination. It's pride. It's this belief that you or your community or your culture knows better, lives better, or just is better than somebody else's. It's this hierarchy that we've created in our own hearts where we feel like we have the authority to judge other peoples or other groups. And sadly, this sin, this deep-rooted sin can be reinforced by our families, by our communities, and even in our societies where it just digs deeper and deeper into our hearts in most cases without us knowing it. Because our prejudice, it affects where we choose to buy a house or send our kids to school. Our prejudice affects who we choose as friends or who we even date or marry. Our prejudice affects our anxiety level when we see that particular person walking by us. It even affects the church we go to and the teachers we choose to listen to or the books we read. It affects everything. Let me just share a personal example here. You know, I grew up to two Korean immigrants who immigrated here around the 1980s. Um, we, we had a very difficult life adjusting to the States. They had a really difficult life um, just starting a business here. Um, I even remember growing up in St. Louis, Missouri, just in my context, uh, we, we faced certain you know, prejudice, discrimination, whether it's because of individual ignorance or just disadvantages that we had as an immigrant family. So as Korean immigrants, we worked incredibly hard to make ends meet and to be successful. But whenever we saw certain individuals from certain people groups not work hard or do questionable activities, there was this self-righteousness and the self-righteous labeling that we had towards other people groups. We saw them as weak or lazy or undeserving. Because of my family and Korean community, One of the people groups that we held on the bottom of the racial hierarchy were were African-Americans, was the black community. Now, this was also because of a historic reason with Korean and African-Americans, like in the LA riots and in other urban contexts, which only reinforced our stereotypes and our biases. But growing up, if you asked me that question, if I had prejudice or I was, you know, had ethnic pride, I would say, of course not. I'm not discriminating against them. I I had African-American friends. But not until I went to college did the gospel expose the deeply rooted prejudice I had in my heart. 
I had the privilege of stepping into various stories of my African-American brothers and sisters through friendships, through experiences, and even through reading books and historical books. I learned from their journey from slavery to segregation to now how those historical realities still face them and affect them today. I learned about their individual stories of discrimination and fear, some of which were similar to what I experienced as an Asian American. I learned about how they felt about faith, scripture, politics, movies, cultures, and more. And the more I sat with them, I listened to them, I asked questions, the more and more I realized just how much prejudice I actually had in my heart that I needed to be exposed and cleansed. I was wrong. And that was hard for me to hear, that was hard. And I know for many of us in this room, it's hard to hear that we have prejudice that need to be exposed. And I'll be honest, I'm far from perfect. I still have much work that needs to be done in my heart. And I still have certain prejudice against certain people groups. And I know that I have a tendency to hide my, to, to hold my culture or my viewpoints higher than others. Church, if we desire to be a multi-ethnic church in this city of Chicago, a beacon of salt and light in the city that welcomes all people, not towards sameness, but towards uplifting our culture and our ethnicities throughout this church, we have so much work to do. We need to let the gospel, which Paul reminds us in Ephesians 2, 14 to 16, that Jesus is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. Christ has put the death, the hostility between you and I, between all of us in the church. So we must let the gospel expose the hostility and prejudice in us. Yeah, church, I don't want to just end with a challenge, but I want to remind us that this is a working process and that, church, we have come a ways from where we originally were as a monocultural, monoethnic church. Whether it's in the 11 churches that you just saw in the video before us sharing our various ethnic backgrounds, whether it's in the diversity of leaderships as we see our, our lead pastors, our elders, our deacons, our small group leaders, or whether it's in the conversations that we have had with others, the learning that is going on, and even the confessions on these issues, we know that God is moving us forward as a multi-ethnic church, and we want to celebrate that. We want to get behind that. We want to thank many of you who are pushing and encouraging these conversations in our churches. But yet, church, we have still much work to do. Let me just continue on with the third foundational truth. I know that that's a heavy one, church, but that's an important one for all of us to recognize. Let me get to the third one, the third foundational truth. The gospel calls us towards continual reconciliation. The gospel calls us towards continual reconciliation. You know, as we go back to our story in verse 35, 
Peter finally gets it. And he says to the Gentile in Cornelius' homes, truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. And as he continues preaching the gospel to Cornelius' household, we see that even before Peter can make a proper altar call, all of them get baptized with the Holy Spirit, and then Peter goes on and he baptizes all of them in water. And as a result, this is the key here in verse 48 of our text. This is the key. Peter remains for them for some days, which means he stayed in their homes and he eats with them. He fellowships with them. And as the Spirit exposes Peter's prejudice and brought him to Cornelius, Peter witnessed firsthand that the gospel is indeed for all people. And, it, and if God doesn't show any favoritism, then Peter should not either. Then the church should not either. So he stays, he eats, and he continues to minister to them. And then in Acts 11, Peter recounts his encounter and advocating for Jewish Christians in Jerusalem that the gospel is for all people and that the Holy Spirit fell on them. And if you go to chapter 11 in verse 17, <clears throat> it concludes in this way. <clears throat> Sorry, allergies. <clears throat> he says in verse 17, if then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when he believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. You know, a shift happens now in the book of Acts, <clears throat> where the entire church and the apostles affirmed that they must not just go to Jerusalem, Judea, or Samaria, but to the ends of the earth. And then we see this happening actually uh, after this part of our text, when we see the church of Antioch being the very first globally sending church in the book of Acts. And you know, I, I, I flew through this story, okay? There's so many texts, there's so many nuances that I could have easily have shared. But what I want to do is actually conclude with going back to Peter. After this story here, did Peter, did he finally get this? Did he finally not have any prejudice in his ministry or his life anymore? Well, if we go to Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 to 21, what happens after Acts 10, the apostle Paul actually calls out Peter for the same exact thing. If we look in verses 11, Paul writes, but when Cephas, which is Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned for be before certain men came from James. He was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all. Even after Peter's, Peter's vision and experience, the same ugly sin of, of ethnic partiality appears again in Peter's action. And this time, it wasn't just towards Gentiles, but it was towards Gentile Christians. And I bring this up because genuine reconciliation in the global multi-ethnic church must be pursued 
daily, weekly, every time we come into the church and by each one of us. It's not only biblically and theologically warranted, but a reconciled global church filled with people is one of the most, filled with all people, is one of the most attractive and missionally effective pictures to our culture today. But to be honest, church, we haven't been so good at this, especially over the past few years. We can't let this prejudice that leads to these sins of partiality, racism, ethnic superiority, nationalism, tribalism, sexism, classism, and other isms that have constantly divided us here in the church. Because when it divides us, it not only divides us as people, but it restricts the gospel movement happening in this city and throughout the world. Our posture in this church should not be to cancel one another, but it needs to be to seek, to listen, and to truly understand one another. And I'm not talking about surface level listening here, but deep, vulnerable understanding. Reconciliation cannot be cheap. We can't water down the gospel where we just celebrate the music or food or good things of certain cultures, but yet not embrace the hardships and sufferings of that people group as well. Jesus didn't just, save, didn't just die to save one culture or one people group. He died to save the mess that's in the church. So we pursue relationships in the church with people who are different than us, who think differently than us, and who might even have certain prejudice towards you. We do it in love, in grace, and yes, in great truth and honesty. Now, does this mean that all of us will agree with every single issue that we can see in our society? No. And church, that's okay. Of course, we need to have our core theological foundations. And when issues of suffering or injustice come up, we need to stand up alongside our brothers and sisters who are going through them. But with the multi-ethnic church coming from all backgrounds and experiences, we must listen first, ask questions second, and then defend, defend our opinions last. And I know when I challenge some of you, you're thinking, I don't want to do that, Noah. I, I, I just don't feel like it. Why should I listen to others who are different than me or don't agree with me? Why should I seek to understand others when they aren't even seeking to understand me? Why should I reconcile with others who have hurt me or maybe even discriminated against me? Well, church, as hard as this is to say, Jesus did so because Jesus did so for us and much, much more. If anyone could have pride or a prejudice towards the people, it would have been Jesus, fully human, fully divine when he came onto earth. He came to earth. He fled as a refugee. He lived in poverty. He was under the oppression of Roman regime. And even after healing many, feeding the hungry, and teaching the masses, he would be unjustly killed as a criminal on the cross. Jesus, our Lord and Savior, lived a life and died a death that none of us in this room would ever want for ourselves, let alone our kids to go through. Yet in the life of his humility, Jesus was brought so low so that we could be lifted up, a people so broken, so divisive, so sinful. 
Jesus sought to listen to us. He sought to understand us. He even took our place so that we could not only be reconciled to God, but so that we could be reconciled with one another. So that every people group, every culture, every language would not create this racial or ethnic or ideology hierarchy to better one another, but that in the church, there would be a race to the bottom to serve to listen, and even to die for one another. Because at the bottom is where we meet our humble king. And in humility, he promises that for those who take that servant position will be once then lifted up in glory along with Christ when Christ returns or when he takes us home. Church, can we admit that we might be wrong, that would you, um, would you be allowing one another to lay down our preferences, our opinions, our pride for one another? Church, would you die for one another? Pride cannot drive our reconciliation. Christ-like humility must drive our reconciliation. Church, I pray that this would be what we take as a church that as the gospel moves forth to the nations, that we would also seek reconciliation with one another, not just on a particular holiday or particular month, but every day, that we would build relationships across different people groups that we don't know well of, that we just don't have much experience with. I strongly encourage you not to treat it as a project, but to treat it as a relationship where God can do much work in your heart as he can do in others. Church, we have a long way to go, but I know by God's grace through the leadership of this church, through the people in this church, that God can do much good work in here, but also throughout our city. Amen? Amen. Let me pray. God, we thank you for your word this morning. God, it's a tough word. And I know there's so much more that can be talked about, shared about, stories that can be heard. But God, I just pray that we will not first come at this with resistance, but come at this with humility. Teach us, Lord, where we have different prejudice or bias or places where sin reigns deep in our hearts and expose that, I pray. In Jesus' name we pray.